Welcome to Bethel. You guys can be seated. It's so good to see you guys. Was I a little quick on the uptake there, Bryce? I just wanted some music as I was talking, right? Um, so Ray and I decided to like be cultured this weekend, and we went to the theater on Friday night, and we went to see My Fair Lady. So it's a musical, okay? And so I happened to sit by an older gentleman, and every time that they sang a song, and this is a musical, lots of songs, um, he just decided to burst out and sing with them. And I'm like, you know, he's just so excited to be here. I'm not sure about theater etiquette and if that was okay, but I'm like, you know what? He was excited. So let's just be excited today and wherever we go. And if you guys want to burst out into song at any time, just feel free. I think that would be fun, right, Ray? Just, just, just burst out in song. We are so glad to have you guys this morning. And if you're visiting with us, we're so glad you're here. We would love to connect with you. And the easiest way to do that is to go to mybethel.cc connect. And there's information there to fill out. And we would just love to call you this week. We won't call you. I promise we won't call you. Right, Ruben? We will text you. We don't want to make you answer your phone. Um, we will text you or email you and just see how we can better get to know you and serve you this week. Um, but thank you for so much for being here and being our guest today. So it's October. And that's just kind of like scary, right? It's like when all the scary stuff comes out and then we talk about our fears, what we're afraid of. And I read something this week that said, um, whatever you're scared of, if you spend time with that, then your fears get better, like get less. And so like if you're scared of heights, climb a mountain or like go high places. And the more you do that, like the more comfortable you feel. And Honestly, I think there might be some truth to it. I shared a fear with you guys last year called pagonophobia that I was dealing with, and it was a fear of beards. And here we are a year later, you know, and it's really not that big a deal anymore. It's like you get used to it. And so there is hope if you have a fear. And so hopefully um, that will get better for you during this next year. We're starting a new series today called Kill the Spider. And we're not, that is not the topic because there's spiders everywhere right now. All over, like outside of our house. Big spiders, right? Hairy spiders. Um, Max came the other day and he's like, Mom, but this one has hairs. I don't want to kill it. And I'm like, yeah, me neither. So, um, but that's not really what we're talking about today. What we're going to be talking about is, you know, we have cobwebs everywhere. Perfect time of the year to see the cobwebs. And we can clean those cobwebs every day and they keep coming back. But we have to kill the spider to keep the cobwebs away. And so we're going to be looking at what do we need to just get rid of in our lives to truly get rid of the junk. So kill the spider. Week one, let's get started.
Good morning, Bethel. You guys doing all right? You have a week? Sort of, kind of, maybe? All right. Some of you have been sick. I'm glad you're better. Some of you are still sick. You're watching online. Uh, thanks for joining us online. Uh, today we start a new series. Um, I'd like to pray for us. This is a um, Kill the Spider is something that I look forward to every year, and I'll kind of explain this, uh, this series and kind of what it means to our church, what it means to us individually. But Kill the Spider has been a series. This is our fourth year to do this, uh, four years in a row that we've actually had this topic. Um, and so we've done like season one, season two, season three. I was going to say season four, but I'm not going to do that. Um, you know, the, the prequels are never as good as the original. And so we're going to just start over, okay? And so we're going to talk about killing the spider. This one specifically, we're going to talk about the spider of shame. And so freedom from the power of shame. And so let's pray. Let's ask God to meet with us. And then let's uh, jump right in. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for who you are. God, as we look at scripture, we see over and over again that that Jesus is the great conqueror, that Jesus is the answer to our life's problems, that we can pursue all sorts of remedies, we can pursue all sorts of healing, and yet Jesus is the one that steps into the center of our mess and the center of our shame, and he is the one that conquers the enemy um, in our hearts and so in our souls. And so God, this morning as we uh, dig into your word, as we see the story of a man that dealt with shame in scripture and how we can also walk in that same path and experience freedom from shame, God, I pray that you'd meet with us, that your spirit would, would talk to us, that we would see your word and actually see where we can dig in and apply it to our lives this week. Jesus, we love you. We thank you so much for, for standing next to us and walking with us as we do battle with the things that get us, with the things that affect us. And we thank you so much for that day that you came down to this earth and you gave your life for us on the cross, rose from the dead, and now give us freedom uh, through uh, access to the Father. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and then we're also going to go to Psalm 51. If you have a smartphone, uh, you can go to our live event and follow along there. Uh, under the More tab, you can follow along with the live event. Uh, if you have your, your Bibles, you can actually circle some things as we go along. Uh, we use the uh, New Living Translation here at Bethel, and so if you uh, flip your phone over to that, you'll follow along with the exact verses. They'll be on the screen as well. Uh, but one thing that we uh, believe in here at Bethel, and one of the things that we truly put our trust in, is in God's Word. God's Word, Scripture, is actually the answer to life. Now, a lot of people look at Scripture and they say, oh, it's a bunch of old stories, don't know what to do with it. Scripture is a guidebook, and it's kind of a, a light post for our lives, and like a guidepost for our lives. You can find all sorts of um, principles. You can all fi find all sorts of um, steps to take as far as being a good employer, being a, a good father, a good mother, a good sibling, a good citizen. There's all sorts of answers in Scripture. Now, Scripture will not tell you some things. For example, how do you um, make a chair or build a car, the mechanics of it and the gears? You won't find that in Scripture. But you'll find how to drive a car in Scripture. You'll find how to get behind the wheel and actually be patient and loving with the people around you. And so Scripture has a living example. And so when we look at Scripture, we see people that are highlighted. And sometimes we mistaken Scripture for, okay, that person, I'm that person. We identify with a person. And then we think if we'll just do what they do, everything will be all right. Well, there's principles in Scripture, and Scripture never hides the good, the bad, the ugly. It's the story just exposed of people's lives, and it's a description of what's happening. And so if we confuse reading Scripture with a 
prescription, like if I'll take this pill, my life will be better. Sometimes in scripture, there's a description of what's happening, and it's simply a narrative of, of the story. And so we can take out some truths, we can find what God was doing in their lives, what he's called them to, and then there's other parts of scripture that's a prescription, like if we will do these things, things will change in our life. And we're hoping to, during this series, Kill the Spider, to actually deal with this topic of shame. Shame was introduced in the very beginning of Scripture, and it deals with it all the way through Scripture, all the way to the end, how we can battle with shame. Now, this season of the year brings about all sorts of scary things, as Christy was saying. Uh, for some reason, spiders are actually coming around now in the fall, and you see the, you're walking, and you'll get a web in your face, and it's not so much that you know, that web's not so scary. It's that we know that at the end of that thing, there's like this big, furry, scary spider attached to it. Um, and tall people like myself, we get all the cobwebs in the face. You know, my kids will walk in front of me, and they'll just miss them all, and I'll just get them all in the face, you know. And my son yesterday was like, hey, Dad, look at that big old nasty spider over there. And I was like, yeah, I see it. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. Okay. Um, some spiders are nice. Most of them are really gross and nasty. And, and, and you can say, a good spider is a dead spider. Now, some of you like spiders. Okay, we'll pray for you. It's okay. Um, we all have our hang-ups, you know. But um, scary movies are a big thing. When I grew up in Costa Rica, um, my friends loved scary movies, like the really, really horror ones, and I just couldn't stand them. I just, I didn't like that kind of stuff. My, our family enjoys scaring one another, and it's not like, even sometimes it's accidental. We don't even realize we're scaring each other, but my daughter Lily has a way that she loves just to sneak up on people. She's very quiet. She can see in the dark, so it can be middle of the night. Last night, Christy and I were sitting there having a conversation, and next thing we know, Lily is standing next to us, scared the everything out of us, and it's like, okay, we actually don't like that feeling when we are surprised, and so we avoid certain things in our lives. We avoid dark places. We avoid alleys. We, do, we avoid uh, under the bed. You know how when you're a kid and you're on the bed and you're like, okay, the boogeyman, the, the shadow man lives under the bed, and if I jump far enough over the shadow, he can't get me, and I'm not going to hang my hand over the bed because he'll yank me under the bed. You know, There's things we avoid because we don't like the fear. We don't like to be scared. We don't like that stuff. And our, our series, Kill the Spider, is not about a lot of fear, and it's not a lot about the things that, can, that, can, that, that, that scare us. It's more about the things that we completely clear all the time from our life, the symptoms in our lives. Uh, our, our series talks about specifically a spider that is a lie that we have believed. And we'll give a description here in a minute. We'll give a definition. But a spider is really a lie that begins to spin webs in our life, and we end up just trying to clear webs. So we actually probably dislike webs more than the actual spiders because the webs are the things that get in our face, and the webs are the things that, that we see, and the webs are the things we're always clearing in the corner of our house and, and, and really, in our back of our minds, there's this nasty spider, but you usually don't see him. He's usually hidden, or he's usually in the corner, or he's, he's usually under a crack. And if we shoo him away, he'll just kind of go back to his little place and not, not bother us. Um, I could tell you stories about how many spiders you eat in your lifetime and stuff like that. I won't, I won't tell you that, but spiders are with us, and they're part of our, uh, it's part of our life. It's just the, the way it goes. In our series, this series in particular, we're going to actually uncover the big bad daddy spider of them all. And this is the one that spins out a bunch of other spiders, which is the spider of shame. Shame 
is the original feeling that man and woman first experienced in the garden when they stepped out of God's plan for their life, for humanity. And we're going to read this, and this is kind of giving us a foundation for our story. If you remember in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and everything was perfect, and he said everything was good, and he, he, he planted this garden, and he placed man and woman in the garden, and he said, now go be fruitful, multiply, and, and continue this garden experience throughout the whole earth and dominate the earth. Well, we get to chapter 3, just a short time after they were placed in the garden, and man and woman had a choice. Are we going to obey God? Are we going to listen to him? Or are we going to go and do our own thing? And so we're going to pick up this story in chapter 3, and let's go to verse 6. So this is Eve. She's standing in the garden. There's a tree that they weren't supposed to eat, the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And she saw it, verse 6, saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. It says, at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. So you see this, this two words that says, felt shame. And so shame is usually tied to an event, either in our distant past or in our recent history, that brings about these feelings of insecurity, of hiding, of regret. And, and it could be a combination of all those, those things. And it's an, an elusive feeling that we find ourselves in, really without knowing it many times. Some have described it like holding on to mercury in your hand. If you've ever played with mercury, I hope you haven't, but I have. And you hold it in your hand, and it kind of, you can't grasp it. As soon as you grab onto it, it, it leaks out of your hand, and you can't quite shape it. And it's just... It's an elusive feeling, and it changes shape, and it's hard to grab or describe. So shame is one of the most powerful influencers we all have in our lives, and it influences our behavior on a daily basis. We can't define it, but we can always feel it. And so you notice there that Adam and Eve felt shame. There's something that was in them that they felt. Um, Christy and I, through our marriage, have had um, different fights and arguments. I know that's hard to believe, but we do fight like normal people, and there's something that happens when Christy's talking to me, and she's piling on shame, let's say, and all it is is like the feelings that I have are, oh, Ray's not good enough, and he's a failure, and he's going to lose, and all this stuff, and so what I end up doing, she's not saying those words, but that's what I feel when she's piling on kind of some criticism, and so what I end up doing is I end up turning it on her, and I'll say something about her so that it can get the attention off me so that she can feel the same thing I'm feeling, because shame likes company. Shame likes someone else to walk and feel the same thing. And so what we end up doing is we end up feeling shame, and we love to include other people in that feeling. Not that they would feel what we feel, but we would turn it on them so that they can also have feelings. And we learn this as kids on the playground. Oh yeah, well my dad can beat up your dad. Have you ever said that? I mean, I have. Because what happens is when we begin to, to compare and we begin to talk to one another, we learn how to play the shame game. And we learn how we can take our shame and then project it on the people around us. And shame actually makes us crack jokes and laugh and cry and run and hide and get angry. It's, it's really an elusive sleight of hand. Have you ever seen magic, magicians that are like amazing? They'll do things and you don't even see them doing it because they're going like this and you're looking at this hand, and this other hand's over here doing some magic. And so when you, when you realize that they have this whole 
magic show in front of you, and all they're doing is they're moving their hands over here. It's a sleight of hand, and that's what shame does. As shame, when we begin to feel it, we say, look over here. What shame are you talking about? Look over here, because we don't want to deal with it. And so shame leads us to find ways to quiet the voices in our heads and the longing in our hearts. We experience outbursts of anger. We experience escape into addiction or erotic behavior. And these actions create all these cobwebs in our lives that cause us to want to change and clear them. And so we try to read more scripture or get a self-help book or maybe do yoga or breathing exercises or maybe we go to therapy because we really want this meditation to clear out the symptoms and even church becomes a thing that we do religiously in order to try to clear some of the cobwebs. And so we come in on Sundays or Wednesdays with all these cobwebs and we say, okay, today help me clear these cobwebs. And today what I want to encourage you to do is actually deal with the root of the cobwebs and actually walk through the fractures in our minds, walk through the fractures in our soul, and actually go and kill the spider, kill the thing that's causing the cobwebs. And in this case today is about shame. The origin of spiders in our lives is actually this, and here's the definition that we're working through, is that they are lives that we, sorry, lies that we believe and negative agreements we make with ourselves. And so sometime in your life, you're going to experience something, either you've participated in or or it's been done to you, and you'll create a lie that you'll tell yourself, and you'll say, that's who I am, and it becomes an identity thing. And so this shame becomes an identity. Today, we're going to actually talk about being shamed into silence, because that shame feeling that we can't quite describe, we've silenced ourselves when it comes to the accusation of the enemy. Because the enemy takes that shame and then he accuses us with the very thing that causes us to want to hide. He tells us that that what shames us is who we are. And he attacks our identity and we spend our lives locking all these feelings away and trying to outrun them. And it only grows and it begins to affect our daily lives. and, And we try to silence the voices, but the whispers in our heads actually say, you don't have what it takes. Or it says, you will never measure up. Or it says, remember what you did. Or it says, remember what was done to you. Something is wrong with you. You are unloved and you are unlovable and you are alone and you will never be good enough and you will never have freedom. And the enemy throws that at us based on a situation that causes shame. And over time, we begin to believe the very things that the enemy tells us. So today we want to examine the life of a man in Scripture that dealt with shame, and he walked through shame. King David is a very famous person in Scripture uh, because Scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart, and it's always confused me why Scripture would call this man this because he experienced every kind of wickedness you could imagine. And yet Scripture said he pursued God, and he was a man after God's own heart. And he's one of the, he wrote one of the most famous poems in Psalm 51, after he did something despicable and shame-filled with Bathsheba. David experienced an incredible forgiveness with God in the midst of his committing an evil act and then trying to hide it and cover it up. I'm not going to read the story, but you can write this down and go read the chapters. There's two chapters in 2 Samuel that describes this, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. 
and it'll walk through the story, but I'll give you kind of the highlight reel, and then you can go get the, the details about it, because the story is the narrative. Psalm 51 is the prescription, okay? There's a description in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and then the prescriptions in Psalm 51. We're going to deal with Psalm 51, but he was home. He was supposed to be off in battle, but he was home. He was walking the rooftops. He looked out, and he saw this lady. She was bathing. She was beautiful, and he's like, oh, who's that? who's this girl? Oh, it's Bathsheba. She's married to Uriah the Hittite. Ah, bring her up to my house. Brings her up to the house. He takes her to bed. They, she conceives. She gets pregnant. And it's David's fault because he took something that wasn't his. And then he's like, hmm, how am I going to fix this? Oh, let's call her husband back from the front lines of the army and let him go in and sleep with his wife. And that way the baby can be his. Well, then the guy comes, and he won't do it because he's a man of character, and he has his men in, in battle, and he's like, I'm not going to do that. My men are on the front lines. I won't do this. I'm not going to have uh, the relationship with my wife. And so David gets him drunk, and he tries to get him to do this thing, and he won't do it. And so David comes up with his plan. You know what? I'll send him to the front line so he gets killed. Sure enough, he sends a letter in Uriah's hands. He goes to the front lines, and he dies. Well, David's like, oh, good. This whole thing's not going to cover up, and so he starts to hide it. He brings Bathsheba, and he's like, okay, let's, let's figure this thing out. Let's marry one another. Let's make this thing right. And then Nathan the prophet comes into the throne room, and he tells him this story, and this story is gut-wrenching. It's about a little lamb that's taken from a guy that only has one lamb, and a guy that has a ton of lambs says, oh, I want that lamb. And he takes the lamb, and he sacrifices it, and David gets mad, and he goes, who is this person? He needs to die and Nathan pointed his fingers at him and said, you're the man. And David, in his brokenness, he realized, oh, I stepped out of what God wanted me to do. I did some things that I shouldn't do. I tried to cover those things up, and it made it worse. And then I actually had someone killed. And then it was exposed to everyone. What I want us to do is I want us to look at his poem, and we're going to see his thought process of how he works through his shame in this poem. Psalm 51. We're going to go through a few verses, and then we'll kind of talk through them. Verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done this evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, and now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. And create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. As you can see here, David tried to hide his sin, acting like nothing was wrong, and then he was confronted in public, and he was guilty. And he was shamed, and he was exposed. And really what shame causes us to do when we have this feeling of shame, we're either going to hide, we're just going to deal with it and stuff it, we're going to ignore it, we're going to lock it away or we're going to cry out for mercy. So what, what's amazing in Scripture is that, that we see people in their darkest moments and how they actually work through the problem of sin. 
They work through the problem of shame, and, and, and the Bible shows us the underbelly of humanity. It shows us the brokenness of people, and it shows us how they actually walked through it. And so we see right here in verse 8, right in the middle of the chapter, he asks God to give him his joy back. And so he says, oh, give me back my joy, and you have broken me. Now let me rejoice. The feeling of shame has been with the humanity since the garden with Adam and Eve. And David knew that joy would remove the feeling of shame. It's joy that takes over shame. So joy is a feeling kind of like shame that's hard to describe. How do you know when you have joy? Because sometimes there's no reason for it. You just have a joy and a rejoicing in your heart. It's kind of like hearing something or seeing something or experiencing something or telling yourself something, remembering something. It gives you a feeling of joy. You can't quite describe it, but you know when you feel it. Um, yesterday, October 2nd, marks 14 years since I went into the jungle and I picked up this little girl. There's a picture of it here on the screen. And 14 years ago, my life changed. And I, a lot of people think, oh, you, you adopted this little girl and how blessed she is. Mm -mm. This changed me. This redeemed me. This started my story on a different path. And God used this moment right here with this little girl that was sick in the jungle and every time I think about it, I just get overwhelmed with joy. And it has nothing to do with how difficult it was. It has nothing to do with the difficulty of walking through adoption. It doesn't have anything to do with difficulty of being a teenager now in my home. It's not that stuff. It's the, the joy, the pure joy of knowing this little girl and looking at this picture. I'm just like, I can't help it. I can't help the joy that overwhelms my heart. And so we learn that the feeling of joy removes the feeling of shame. You can't experience both at the same time. Now, you can try to think about them both, but you can't live and experience them both. Joy is an emotion and a state of mind. It's a felt, it is felt when there's good news. It's felt when we remember something positive. It's felt when we're told something positive. It's felt when we remember something positive. The opposite is true with shame. Shame is a state of mind. And shame actually is felt when we hear bad news or, rem or when we're reminded, remem remember something, a mistake, or it's felt when we're told something about our own personal lives or remem remember something about our own personal life. It's those voices in our head that tell us we're damaged goods and no one can ever accept us or love us. It's the damage, it's the voice in our heads that tells us we are never going to be good enough, that we were a mistake. And the story of the good news, the story of the gospel, is that Jesus comes in that shame and he reconnects us to the Father. He's still looking for men and women who will know him. David is actually trusting in the mercy of God. He's trusting in his previous experiences with God. And he's calling on God to forgive him and to restore him. You know, we've heard that God is gracious and merciful, but really how really do we believe it when it comes to us? Oh, it's good for the person sitting next to me, and it's good for my neighbor, and it's good for other people, but when it's my situation, I just, I'm dealing with too many things, and we've heard that God is forgiving and restorative, but can he do that for me? I'm not really sure. We have, we have to repeat the promises of God, and we have to repeat the goodness of God. We have to repeat that we're in a relationship with the Father, Satan tells us that it's very normal to sin. Just look at Adam and Eve. They couldn't handle it. They were in the perfection of the garden, and yet they couldn't follow God's command. So it's very normal not to obey, and Satan downplays the seriousness of sin at the same time accusing us and shaming us when we do. He uses it against us. 
He tells us that God will never forgive that. He tells us that God wasn't there when we experienced that. The devil's schemes are evil. But here's the good news, and there's a shame killer and a step towards freedom. And it's simply this, to bring your shame into the light. It's to bring your shame into the light. Because as soon as you bring your shame into the light, it has no more power. It has no more control. It, it, it cannot keep you in bondage. And here's what David did. He said, number verse 1, he said, Have mercy on me, O God. He was calling out to the mercy of God. That is a, that is a Jewish thought in the old scripture. But if you look at the New Testament, we see grace. Be gracious to me. Show your unmerited, your unmerited favor towards me. And then, this is what he does in verse 2. He says, wash me clean from my guilt. A lot of times we confuse our guilt with our shame, and we need to deal with our guilt so that it doesn't become shame. But many of us walk around with our guilt, and then it turns into shame and an identity for us the rest of our lives. He says, purify me from my sin. And then he says, I recognize my rebellion. It actually haunts me day and night. It's something that's with me all the time. So he acknowledged that the shame was there. He exposed sin, and he exposed the shame. He was no longer hiding from it, even though that was his tendency. And the exposure that he experienced is like breathing again. Verse 4, against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just, for I was born a sinner. He was acknowledging and confessing the reality of humanity. All of us were born in the same state. And acknowledging it instead of running from it is the first step towards freedom. David was actually confessing and admitting his agreement with God in the exposure of his shame. And it was a confession of his agreement. It was a confession of his alignment to God's will. And it was a surrender to him. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, who are we agreeing with? And what confessions do we have in our lives? Because when you agree with someone or something, you're actually confessing it and, and bringing it into identity. And so what we've done, when we experience something that causes shame, we think that's who we are. And so we agree and we confess that that's who we are. Well, that's a lie, and that's an agreement that we've made with the world around us. And we have to expose it. And so many of us are agreeing with the enemy when he tells us that we're messed up, that we can't do it, that we're unloved, and that we'll never, ever, ever measure up. But Jesus says something completely different. Jesus says, you are loved. He says, you are mine. He says, you are my son. You're my daughter. You are forgiven. You're chosen, that you have purpose. And we have to ask ourselves, who are we listening to? Are we listening to the enemy? Are we listening to Jesus? Are we listening to that voice that tells us that we're worthless? Or are we listening to that voice that tells us we're invaluable? Confession's agreement. And confession is stepping into the light. Once you verbalize and confess the thing that shames you and what the enemy's telling you, you can begin to actually kill it and get freedom from it. Exposing shame helps me recognize my need for rescue. David actually asked God for mercy, for washing, for restoration, for wholeness. And in verse 7, he says, Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. He understood that, that God was the source of the cleaning. It wasn't anything else he could do. It wasn't a six-step program. It was actually God that was the source. He says, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. So he's longing for this new path, and he longs for freedom, and he longs for joy, and then he cries out in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. 
I don't want that to be locked away in my heart anymore. I don't want that shame to dwell in my heart anymore. He understood that the presence of God and the Spirit of God are the source of joy and freedom. And he, he understands that this is a process in life, and this is what God is trying to do in and through him, and he agrees to expose his shame and bring it into the light. And so you have to ask yourself today, so what lies am I believing? What, am, what shame am I identifying with? What shame am I hiding and am I locking away? As we read through Psalm 51, it's really been a source of many prayers and declarations, even in my own life. And for followers of Jesus for centuries, they've claimed this passage as a source of hope and a source of actually restoring joy. So we got to see it. we got to expose it. we got to ask God for mercy and restoration. So this week I want to encourage you to take Psalm 51, the first 11 verses, and cry them out to the Father. Take some time and write them down in your own words. Bring the shame and the agreement you've made into the light because the healing is on the other side. I'd like to pray for you this morning. God, this morning we are dealing with um, something that is elusive to talk about. It's our shame, it's experiences we've had, it's things we believe, it's lies that we've accepted. God, right now my prayer is that as we step into worship that you'll begin to loosen and unlock those doors that we've locked away for years. That you'll begin to expose and allow us to step away from our shame and into the light. That we'd be able to actually trust you that when you say, just cast your burdens on me and I've, I've got this, that we would do that. God, as we, as we step into worship, we understand that Jesus actually is over and more powerful than any shame we can experience, any shame we can feel. No matter what the enemy is telling us, Jesus knows and he wants to walk with us. And exposing this around other trusted people actually can help us reach out for freedom. So God, during this time of worship, I pray that you begin to loosen and unlock the doors in our hearts. Before we sing, um, I brought some keys. Uh, Christy and I have, a, have some keys we've collected. I didn't bring our most special one, but keys are interesting because keys are actually to, to lock things away. Um, today we have passwords and we have security codes and, and the reason that we actually carry keys around and the reason that we have passwords is to keep people out of the things that are private and the things that are ours. And, and if we leave something unlocked, we're in danger of someone coming in and messing it up. And so we, we carry around these keys and, and what's happening in our own lives is that we have this idea of shame and we have these doors in our heart and we, we begin putting things of shame in there, locking them and just putting them back deep. And, and the issue is that shame is elusive and it sneaks out and it begins to spill out under the, under the doors that we've locked it away and we try to put as much security as we can so that no one knows what we've walked through. And, and what happens is when we begin to experience that shame and it grows and it spills out of underneath the doors of our hearts, we, we begin to fight and we begin to argue and we begin to lash out. We begin to be really erratic. And then when people are around us, people are like, man, something must be, something must be up. And, and we look at our own lives and when, when our shame is touched, we can even see how we react. And we grab those feelings and we begin to take them to our door and we lock them in there away again. And, and then one day Jesus comes and he's, 
he's got a bunch of keys in his hands. And you're like, oh no, Jesus, just leave that one alone. I, I'll, I'll serve you and I'll worship you if you'll just leave that stuff alone. That stuff's locked away and it's too far back. And, and Jesus comes with these keys and he sees our shame. He doesn't judge us or condemn us. He actually says, I know. He actually opens the doors and he steps right into them, right in the middle. And he says, I'm here. He, uh, he unlocks all these doors that we've carefully locked and we've carefully stored away for years so that no one would know. And Jesus cares and he loves you and he restores and he places our sh replaces our shame with joy and he proves his love for us as he stretches his arms out on the cross. He's over everything. He's more important than everything. He's more important than any, any feeling that we could ever have. And, and my question this morning is, when you, when you look at your keys, and some are old and some are new, the keys that have locked away the lies that you believed, the things that have become your identity, the shame that dominates you, would you be willing to actually step into freedom and say, okay, Jesus, you can take my keys. You, you can have them. Freedom has actually been purchased on the cross. Freedom was, uh, freedom was given the day that Jesus said it is finished. When Jesus rose from the dead, he took death, hell, and the grave, and he conquered them all. And yet most of us live in bondage because we have not stepped into freedom. And Jesus saw that we were trapped, and he sees that now we are trapped, and he pulls out his keys, and he, he has little words on his keys, and his keys, one of his keys, keys says, it's forgiven. And that key just unlocks shame and releases shame. There's another key that says chosen. How, how could it be that I've identified with things that are shameful, and yet the God, the creator of the universe, has chosen me? Another key says love. It's love that conquers all fear. And there's another key that says, my child. And he wraps his arms around us and carries us in the midst of our shame. There's another key that says valuable. There's another key that says unbeatable. There's another key that says free. How in the world can we open up those locked doors and how do we step into freedom? And it's really reminding ourselves that we're free. It's reminding ourselves that Jesus has paid it all. And there's nothing more to pay. There's no more penance to be done. It's repeating it to ourselves. It's surrounding us by people that, that we love and that trust us and that, tr that we can trust. And there's people that are on the other side of our lives, the underside of the locked doors that we have done, and they're saying, listen, I'm with you. I'm on your side. I'm for you. Let's walk together. They're encouraging you. And what they're saying is Jesus is over everything. Let's stand and worship together. Um, I totally agree that... The, the darkness is not good like yeah. for our guilt and our shame in the darkness it just grows right. and but I also believe that there's a safe way to expose yeah. because I think we've all found ourselves in circumstances where we're like oh I'm just gonna expose my junk and maybe it wasn't in the best, a healthy way maybe and so I think my question for you right now before we leave is okay exposure is needed like the light is deaf is a definite need what what is a healthy step 
for me to do that, for me to walk into exposure in life in a safe and healthy way? It's a really good question. Um, I think as we walk through life as a believer, a lot of us are surprised by the underbelly of humanity. And I think we need to get ourselves to a place where we're ready to walk with people. Right. Um, in the Bible event, there's three questions or three consideration points at the end. And the first one is, let's, I don't remember what the first one is actually. One of them is, um, take Psalm 51, write it in your own words, and begin to confess and have a confessional kind of a relationship with God. Because I think the first thing is, I need help. I need supernatural help. Right. And so confession to the Father. But then the last point is, is there someone that you trust? Is there someone around you that you can actually walk with in this thing? And so there are people that are safe people. Uh, there's some people need a therapist and some people need uh, talk to the pastor, or to a fellow believer. Uh, there's community group, there's small group that we can talk to. So I think each person is going to be a little different, but we should find someone trustworthy. But I think there are, there are people that aren't ready to hear yeah, I everything yet. I so I think one of the key components is finding someone who is, is ready to walk with you yeah. because um, I'm just trying to think of an example off my head and I can't, but like pulling someone out of the ditch and saying, Hey, can you walk with me through my mess too? They may not be ready yet. Right. And right. so we need to make sure that yes, someone needs to walk along that person as well. But we need to make sure that when we ask someone for help, that yeah. they're not going through the, the same addiction as well at that time, <laughs> that they can actually be strong enough to carry us. Right. Well, and I, um, our, our motto or our vision here at Bethel is to love and lead one another. And as this, this idea of one another and loving and leading has, is all wrapped up in knowing. And what, once I know someone and I have actually have a relationship with someone and I can say, hey, there's this thing I'm dealing with, well, we know one another and we're not going to be surprised. Uh, right. if, you're, if you're surprised by sin, I'm not sure where you're living. Yeah. And so you just need to like almost take off the halo and take out the Bible out from under mm -hmm. your arm and say, okay, I know it's Sunday, but there's people that are walking through crap. That's really right. what it is. And so right. we actually need to be ready at all times to walk. That's what uh, Second Peter says, be ready for, or sorry, First Peter says, be ready to share the hope that's in you. And so be ready. Be okay. ready to walk with people and not be surprised. Right. But right. Psalm 51, I'm, I promise okay. you can take this week and actually make it your own confession. It'll, it'll do something powerful in your heart. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. Um, we're so glad you're visiting with us. We're glad that you came today. Um, as we leave today, that remember here at Bethel, we exist to love and lead one another to find and follow Jesus. Love you guys. Have a good one.